In March 1990, Madonna released her now iconic music video, Vogue. It was shot in black and white, a steady beat and a glamorous synth blade underscoring statuesque men in impeccably tailored suits. Their faces were strikingly regal and poised as Madonna sang the chorus, Come on Vogue, let your body move to the music. She and her impeccably dressed background dancers began to vogue along to the beat. For many Americans, this video was the first time that they had seen gay culture displayed so artistically, so lovingly, in a mainstream venue. Madonna performed the song around the world on her Blonde Ambition World Tour, ultimately performing a Vogue routine at the MTV Video Music Awards in French 18th century court costume. She and her backup dancers, some recruited from the New York underground ballroom scene, received a standing ovation. This performance became one of the most well-known of her career, and the next night she performed it again for the AIDS Project Los Angeles Commitment to Life benefit. It was 1990, and the already legendary Madonna had elevated the ballroom scene to a global MTV audience. But the world was soon to find out. Queer culture had already been influencing the mainstream for decades, especially in fashion. It had just gone unacknowledged. Queerness was an open secret, the fashion-forward elephant in the room. But years of homophobia and a don't-ask-don't-tell mentality was upended when the AIDS crisis forced the fashion world to address the pandemic that was devastating its very people. By the 90s, queer culture had turned political and was impossible to ignore. And that brought in a new era of freedom and visibility for the queer community that had been influencing our culture for decades. Welcome to In Vogue, the 1990s, a podcast about a pivotal time that ushered in a new era in fashion and in culture. Join us as we examine the defining moments of the decade that shape fashion as we know it today. We'll hear from fashion leaders, cultural icons, and Vogue's own editorial team. I'm Anna Winter. And I'm Hamish Bowles, Vogue's international editor-at-large and your host. I was 16 years old, maybe a year or two younger than Naomi, if that. In 1988, Jose Gutierrez was a young dancer, choreographer, and member of the House of Extravaganza, a drag and ballroom collective based in Harlem. They put on shows in rented dance halls, and their spectacular performances were getting lots of attention. Then, in Vogue's December 1988 issue, Jose and the other members of the House of Extravaganza were featured next to Naomi Campbell and Carrie Otis. We shot in Battery Park, you know, Battery Park City. It was a beautiful day, and we were just shooting outside, and it was so grandioso. Just everything, you know, like everything bold, like legit. <laughs> you know, and crowds gather around to watch. The likes of Naomi, you know, right next to us, you know, runway sashaying by the waterfront. It was just one centerfold, and there was a group shot of the house, the house of extravaganza. We were being our true selves. They put us in all this colorful attire. Clad in quilted satin coats from designers Victor Costa and Carol Cohen, 
a sequin top from Randy Kemper, and ostrich feather bolleros by Jeanette Kastenberg. The house of extravaganza stood behind the models looking like a decadently fashionable entourage. To be asked to be part of something like that was like honorable at that time, you know, and such a big deal too. I mean, again, it was just one centerfold. And then, you know, it had our names and it had the name of our organization. By appearing in that 1988 Vogue spread, Gutierrez, in ways he perhaps didn't even know at the time, was at the forefront of a tidal shift in the fashion industry and in mainstream society at large. That 1988 Vogue spread was a bellwether of a much larger cultural shift that would happen in the 90s. But our story doesn't begin there. Our story begins in 1969. On a warm night in Greenwich Village, New York City police raided a popular gay club. The club sat just off 7th Avenue, a major thoroughfare. So when the queer patrons, most of them black and brown and many dressed in drag, fought back against police, they fought for the whole neighbourhood to hear. The riots began a new era of sexual emancipation, Even in the culture writ large, there was a sort of liberation taking hold. Stonewall had happened, and in the 70s there was a kind of freedom, and certainly it was a very hedonistic period, between, you know, the pill and AIDS. Designer Tom Ford arrived in New York in the 70s, and he entered a scene that a lot of designers remembered as a time where queer identity was not only out in the open, but it was celebrated. We grew up. You know, as I say, in the 70s, we're sort of, you went through the period where gay was great. This is designer Michael Kors. Gay was not something to be, you know, ashamed of. Queer identity happened in the 70s. These were guys who, like Halston and Stephen Burroughs, they were very much part of the popular culture scene at that particular time. Fashion critic and author Robin Gavan. The attitudes of youth were really infused in their collections, particularly Stevens, and there was a real looseness to them. And so his signature fabric was this sort of light jersey, and it hid nothing. It was basically like just a scrim over your body. And it was a celebration of that. It was a little bit like wearing nothing. And he loved color. And much of his work was inspired by what would you want to wear out dancing that you could wear into the dawn. It wasn't just gay male designers who were celebrating the body in their collections. Lesbian women around the country shed the weight of imposed heterosexuality and their clothes along with it. We used to have eight to 10,000 dykes that went to Michigan every year. It started in the 70s. Leah Delaria is a famous comedian and the first openly lesbian comedian to perform on late night television. These gatherings were the mainstay of dyke culture. It was like where we could really uh, be us. First of all, we're in the middle of the woods. There's a big stage, there's lights, there's all that, all that going on. And uh, everyone's camping, everyone's naked. I can't tell you how many naked women. For the gay and lesbian communities, this was a decade of embracing the sexuality that they'd been denied for so long. The underground parties and backwards festivals forged a thriving community of queer people where out was in and expressing queer identity was not only a statement of pride, it was a fashion statement. So many visual references from the 70s The slinky dresses, the form-fitting pants that highlighted the curve of the body, the sequins and the glitter. 
These were all markers of the queer community, and we saw them in mainstream music, in disco. In 1978, disco singer Sylvester, known as the Queen of Disco, premiered You Make Me Feel Mighty Real. The music video featured Sylvester in female and male looks, dresses and suits interchangeably. This kind of gender-bending androgyny and glorification of the sensuality of the body found its way out of the community and into the mainstream fashion industry. The designer Holston, a gay man himself, dressed the most famous women of the era, from Liza Minnelli and Diana Ross to Betty Ford and Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis, in what we would come to understand as classic 70s looks, inspired in part by the community. An entire look of the decade sprung from queer liberation, and that celebration shaped the fashion industry. But in the 1980s, tragedy in the gay and trans community was the new defining force in the fashion community. More after the break. Hey friends, I'm Alameen Abdul-Mahmoud. I'm the host of the new podcast, Commotion. If you don't know about us yet, well, we are your daily deep dive into the biggest stories coming out of the world of pop culture, art, and entertainment. And luckily, I'm not going to be doing it alone, okay? I'll be joined by some brilliant culture writers and thoughtful superfans. We're going to have hilarious hot takes. We're going to have vibrant debates. Consider this your invitation to join the group chat. Get in here and join us. Commotion, available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm journalist Sam Sanders. I'm poet Saeed Jones. And I'm producer Zach Stafford. And we are the hosts of a podcast called Vibe Check. On Vibe Check, we talk about everything. News, culture, and entertainment, and how it all feels. That's right. We talk about any and everything on our show, from real-life issues like grief to music and movie critiques. And that barely scratches the surface. Yes, indeed. And it doesn't stop there. We have got a lot to say. So join our group chat, Come to Life. Follow and listen to Vibe Check wherever you get your podcasts. In 1982, I was an 18-year-old art student in London. I remember an amazing club world friend of mine, Lee Bowery, who'd recently arrived from a little village called Sunshine in Australia and would become this extraordinary performance artist. Lee was already a significant figure in the nightclub scene at that point and would come to run a fabled club of his own called Taboo because there was nothing taboo that went on there. But before all that, we were just young adults preparing to go out for the night. And then we had this conversation that I'll never forget. And he said, I've just been hearing about this gay cancer. It just affects promiscuous gay men and they're getting it in America and it's, and it's deadly. And he was understandably very concerned about this because he certainly fit that category. And it was a very haunting thing to discover at the age of 18. In 1981, the first case of what would eventually be known as HIV-AIDS was identified. And by the end of 1981, there were 270 reported cases, and 121 of those diagnosed had died. When you were living in that time, your friends did drop like flies. 
sometimes you would be afraid to go and visit them in the hospital because you yourself didn't want to deal with the fact that possibly you had been exposed. Lady Bunny is best known for creating Wigstock, a festival celebrating queer culture, but especially drag culture, in 1984. I thought what I could contribute as a jester would be to throw a party uh, Wigstock that would bring people together and make us celebrate that, hey, we are in dark times, but we can throw a wig on our head and act a fool at the end of the summer and be together while we can. And I wanted to bring that drag out of the underground and have a larger audience enjoy it. I uh, wore a lot of heavy-duty corsets by Mr. Pearl, the corseteer. And he went on to do stuff for Mugler, Gautier, many designers wanting custom pieces, bride's gowns for the Rothschilds embroidered with real pearls. The joyous celebration of Wigstock was a stark contrast to the reality on the ground. But that was what it meant to live life as a gay person in this period. So th this is what my generation often jokes about. Of course we didn't save money. We didn't think we were going to be alive. Especially not a slut like me. <laughs> but I was a safe slut, so I'm still here to tell about it. It was triply traumatizing. Gay men and trans people were worried about their own risk of catching this deadly disease. They were losing friends and loved ones at a horrifying pace. And then on top of that, they had to survive intense, violent homophobia that was spreading as rapidly as the virus. All of that hate was still roiling under the surface while you thought it had been going away. Valerie Steele, fashion historian. All of the liberation and acceptance which seemed to have been growing so much from the 70s on just kind of crashed. The sexual revolution of the 70s glorified sensuality, but the AIDS crisis of the 80s turned hedonism into a death sentence. And that change, of course, showed up in the fashion world. Designers were dying and no one wanted to talk about it. That's how bad the stigma was. I remember when Perry Ellis was very ill um, before he died and talking to editors and retailers who were at the last show that he was alive for. And everyone was aghast at really how sick he was. But eventually it became impossible for the fashion industry to ignore that a huge portion of their community were afflicted by this crisis. We lost so many. Designers Willie Smith, Patrick Kelly, Holston, Tommy Nutter, Chester Weinberg, Perry Ellis, Angela Strada, Clovis Ruffin, makeup artist Way Bandy, It Girl, Tina Chow, and models Gia Karanji and Joe McDonald, art director Juan Ramos, his partner fashion illustrator Antonio Lopez, artist Tony Veramontes, photographers Herb Ritz, David Seidner, Bill King, and so many more. But as much as we would like to think that fashion was above homophobia because the fashion community overlapped the gay community so closely, HIV AIDS made the fashion industry as fearful of and discriminatory towards gay men as practically any other mainstream industry. So the creativity and vibrancy of queer culture that had found its influence reflected in the designs of Holston and Stephen Burroughs had waned. 
I think was this very strange moment in fashion. Uh, the fashion world and the world in general was, but especially the fashion world, was really reeling from AIDS. Designer Tom Ford. And any sort of hedonism or blatant sexual content of clothes, I don't know how to really phrase that, but sexy clothes were not in fashion. This was the era of Bill Blass and Oscar de la Renta's polite ladies who lunch dresses worn with power shoulder jackets, of Armani's subtle man-tailored suits, and the anti-sex quietude of the emerging Belgian designers, including Martin Margiela and Dries van Noten. Within the fashion industry, they were there as allies and friends to try and help out. Historian Valerie Steele. But sometimes the atmosphere around them, you you know, people would be saying, oh, I think I'm going to hire a woman designer because the man might die. We went into this period in the late 80s where I think that fashion was very nervous to talk about designer sexuality at all because there was fear that would this, would this turn off the consumer if they thought that the designer could be ill and have AIDS? Would this turn off business people from investing in designers? By 1985, however, fashion designer and AIDS activist Kenneth Cole could see that silence wasn't sustainable. Because stigma was so devastating um, and so pervasive. So I saw this as an opportunity and did a campaign with Annie Leibowitz. And we got some of the biggest models in the industry to donate their time and their, and their persona. Um, I ran an ad. So we did a picture of a condom and we said shoes aren't the only thing we encourage you to wear. After designer Perry Ellis died of AIDS in 1986, the deadliness of AIDS felt too close to the top echelons of fashion to ignore. Fashion came together right on the cusp of the 90s. Led Borelli Person is Vogue's archive editor. The Council of Fashion Designers, the CFDA with Anna Wintour and Carolyn Rome and and Donna Karen organized a sale to raise money for AIDS. It was called Seventh on Sale. These superstars of fashion came together last night. They sold their own creations and they bought from others all for a worthy cause. Seventh on Sale is the name of the effort sponsored by the Council of Fashion Designers of America and Vogue magazine, and it is all to benefit the New York City AIDS Fund. It was a hard sell because it was not a fashionable cause. In fact, at that point, it was something that brands wanted to shy away from. When you lose so many friends and so many people are dying of AIDS and so many people are dying of cancer, you go, what is going on? And I had this idea of opening up conscious consumerism shopping, which was started out as let's take all the stuff we have. And I said, let's sell it and make money for the awareness of AIDS. I remember Caroline Rome was the president back then and Donna Karen and Caroline and Anna Winter all said, we can all do something together. And we banded together. It didn't matter if you were a tiny little business or a behemoth. Everyone rolled up their sleeves I remember when we first opened, the opening night was unbelievable. 
the energy in the room. I mean, you had Patti LaBelle singing. Iman had just started dating David Bowie. The whole, the whole night, Linda and Christy, Naomi, it was really special. And I think it showed that the industry was a community. And then we saw the lines of customers and consumers the next day wanting to engage not only with fashion, but to raise money for this pandemic. We sold everything we had within the first hour and a half on the first day we opened. And I, we kept restocking with anything we could find. I will always look back at the first seventh on sale. Number one, one of the greatest moments in my personal life, in my career, I never felt more proud to be a part of this community. Seventh on Sale was one of the first times the fashion industry expressed direct interest in the communities most impacted by AIDS. Even though those communities have been innovating and transforming what fashion could be, what fashion even meant. You know, in Vogue, you wanted to emulate what you saw in the magazines and what you saw on the runways. The organization started to adapt these designers and these names that inspired that. You know, the house of Chanel and the house of Blair. And it went hand in hand with what was being done with, with the movement, for sure. Gaultier, very popular within the community, Versace, Kenza Yamamoto. And those were the designers. I mean, I loved Gautier. I grew up um, loving his designs. You know, these kids would try and, and create costumes that emulated those things that were of color and exaggerations and, you know, a bit risque. So I remember at one ball, I wore this Dolce and Gabbana beaded in pearls motorcycle jacket. It was, yeah, it was the dopest thing, man. And wow, I mean, the thing weighed like about 50 plus pounds and it was all encrusted in pearls, white pearls. Yeah. And I remember I came out with that and a string of pearls around my neck. No shirt. <laughs> I competed that night and I, I won the category. Most of the time, the competitors couldn't afford to adorn themselves in designer clothes. So they made and wore their own designs inspired by the designers they so admired. It was like you were wearing a sculpture, you know, so even to get a fabric that necessarily wasn't Miyake, <laughs> but, you know, that you got at the fabric store and be able to wrap yourself in that Miyake knockoff <laughs> was of great fashion inspiration. The drama of the ballroom scene and the theatrics of drag culture was so undeniable that the decade of turning a blind eye to this community was simply unfashionable. And by 1989, members of the queer community began to realise that the art and beauty of drag and ballroom was alluring even outside their community, and that that allure could be harnessed to bring in a larger community of allies for political activism. Look, Roseland, it's Suzanne Barch's benefit. Suzanne Barch, a legendary party promoter, saw the potential to marry the ballroom houses of Harlem and the fashion houses that they so admired, for good cause. Ballroom culture, very on the ground in the 80s. The last ball really brought it to the forefront. And the idea of how do I make money with these houses was to go to Armani, Donna Caran, Barney's New York, 
and uh, get them to be a house for the night. And none of them knew what it was. The result was the Love Ball, a fundraiser-turned-epic party with an incredible guest list. Donna Karen, David Byrne, Iman and Carolina Herrera were among the judges, and the event was sponsored by major fashion retailers like Barney's and Swatch Watches. Thanks to Suzanne's push, the Love Ball raised $400,000. But even more than that, it made AIDS a fashionable charitable cause for the straight-laced philanthropists and corporations. There were many winners of the night. José Gutiérrez Extravaganza took home the grand prize voguing category, a trophy designed by Keith Haring. And a year after the Love Ball put ballroom on the map for New York's elite socialites and philanthropists, Jose Gutierrez was about to help Madonna put it on the map for everyone else. One winter night, one of Madonna's confidants, a woman named Debbie Meza, brought her along to a ballroom competition at the Sound Factory in Midtown Manhattan. And one day, one night, Debbie shows up at the club with this person and that she wants me to meet. She drags me halfway across the dance floor and introduces me to this woman who says to me, hi, I'm Madonna. I heard a lot about you. And I'm like, hi, how are you? I mean, and so Madonna leans in and she says to me, I heard you vogue really well. I heard you're the best, will you show me? I was always very fashion forward. So I remember I had this great, you know, tight fitting outfit very constricted, strapped, wrapped and stuff. I believe, you know, some of it was Gautier. And honestly, I first thought of my outfit. I was like, I'm going to get dirty. And she looked at me like I was like, this kid got nerve, you know? She says, come. And she went into the VIP room with her. And she, I remember she made her security guard give me his trousers while he waited in the VIP bathroom in a towel. I stripped right in front of her. I went out there, showed her, you know, then the end of the night, she says to me, I I wrote this song and I want to do a music video for it. And I would love for you to be in it. I would love for you to help me put it together. Before she left, she said, I would also love to use you for a world tour that I'm having. I don't know if you're able to do any other types of dancing. It just can't be voguing. You have to be familiar with other forms of dance. What Madonna didn't know when she invited Jose to audition as a backup dancer was that Jose Gutierrez was a classically trained dancer and easily passed the audition's tests. What made him stand out, though, was his experience and the X factor he brought as a winning ballroom voguer. And here I am at 18 years old, being invited not only to choreograph this video, but to travel the world with this woman being plucked out of nothing, as they say. Jose Gutierrez Extravaganza went on to choreograph Madonna's Vogue video. I was just putting together movement, and she was such a perfectionist, 
at watching and she would get upset when she didn't get it right. She wanted to get it like I did. And I remember she's like, how can I do that? And I'm like, you have to feel it, I said to her. There's no technique to this. You know, it's attitude more than anything. Madonna's Vogue became a smash hit. The music video received a total of nine MTV Video Music Award nominations and three awards in 1990. That year, it became the world's best-selling single, selling over six million copies. And Madonna's Blonde Ambition tour went to 10 countries and grossed over $62 million. With that success, voguing and ballroom culture went mainstream. A small community that had begun in black and brown neighborhoods of New York City had global appeal on an unprecedented scale. The deadliness of HIV-AIDS was still very much present, and violent homophobia was still a horrifying, omnipresent threat. But public acknowledgement of queer people and of the disease had vastly changed. The turn of the 90s also brought a break in the clouds, as the queer community refused to be defined by this disease and instead celebrated their culture in wild, rebellious joy. Then the early 90s, very late 80s, we all went to South Beach. Everyone ran to South Beach. And I knew people who thought they were going to die. There wasn't readily available uh, medication to keep people alive. So I knew people who cashed out their insurance policies and said, well, I'm going to South Beach. I'm going to get a tambourine. I'm going to dance all night. And you had this explosion of exuberance that was sort of this, well, we're going to just be ourselves and we're going to make noise. But I think there was this, I don't know, this explosion of energy after the very sadness um, in the queer and gay world in the late 80s, there was just this full-on frivolity. And then, of course, the cycle goes up and down. When HIV-AIDS was no longer as much of a barrier between the queer community and the rest of society, other members of the queer community, particularly lesbians, found new visibility in the mainstream, even on the covers of glossy magazines like Vanity Fair. Katie Lang, an openly lesbian country singer, was featured on Vanity Fair's August 1993 cover with Cindy Crawford. The Cindy Crawford, Katie Lang cover. Katie was in a butch outfit and she was in a... So to me, that was the closest thing to what the culture was for me as a lesbian. They realized that gay money spent as good as any other money. It was in the 90s that... Queer Pride, which had been a protest for my entire life. It was in the 90s that it turned into more of a celebration as we got more corporate sponsors. We saw a lot of queer, albeit not written by queers and usually not performed by queers and usually not directed by queers, but we saw a lot of visual imagery in books, in theater, in movies, in fashion. And lesbian visibility would soon show up in a way it previously hadn't before, on the runway. And it was pioneered by one designer in particular. Jill Sander starts coming out also, dressing what some people disparagingly call like lesbian chic. Kim Jenkins, fashion historian. You know, because she was doing these kind of basics, these really chic, expensive basics for the woman who just wants to wear like a white button-down shirt and maybe a blazer, you know, just something, you know, she doesn't want to wear the shoulder pads and the, and, you know, have this whole 1980s look going on or this Johnny Versace kind of over the top Italian look. There were a lot of 
references borrowed from menswear, like First World War great coats. Jill herself was lesbian, although fairly low-key about it. But there was what one would have then called a sort of lipstick lesbian vibe. I remember the models had kind of sleek, sort of boyish haircuts and a strong lipstick and these kind of slightly mannish, elegant, understated clothes, a lot of pantsuits in beautiful fabrics and often a very kind of dark, moody palette. I wore a lot of Jill Sonder in the 1990s. Historian Valerie Steele. And that was kind of really beautiful, minimalist tailoring. Androgynous, but just like very, very chic. It had some of that kind of upper-class masculine look that you'd seen a century before. There were a lot of opinions about lesbian chic. My initial thought was that that was a contradiction in terms, because lesbians seemed to be deliberately anti-fashion. Lesbian chic was invented basically by producers, etc., who want to capitalize on the straight male fantasy. Lesbians really didn't have a lot of voice in it in a way that was, to many of us, especially someone who is politicized as I am and as butched as I am, I found it pretty fucking annoying. So here, you know, I've been up there on the front lines doing the good fight for lesbian visibility for well over a decade, and then we finally get some visibility. It's not really lesbians. That probably influenced fashion in terms of popular culture, right? Uh, More than actual lesbians. But by 1993, Leah herself would bring her own flavour of lesbian culture as the first openly gay stand-up comic on late-night television. And as she ran out onto the stage, she made history with this opening line. All right, hello everybody, I'm Leah Delary and I'm a big dyke! That was a no-name vintage suit that I had gotten out of a little vintage store in Raleigh. I was doing a gig there. And it just, it was like a, a very unusual when you're, first of all, when you're a butch. So we've got hips that men don't have. We've got figures that men don't have. So a vast majority, a majority of butches just buy suits that are too big. Sometimes they'll tailor them to fit themselves. Sometimes they'll just wear them too big. Um, luckily, it was the 90s, so big was in. So that suit I had was big on me, but it was very fashionably big, and it looked, it looked fantastic. So uh, that was what I was wearing, and I believe Fluvonk shoes were the, the shoes. Fairly certain that was a Calvin Klein white shirt that I had on. You know, the basic classic white shirt. So I, that was everything. That was, And, of course, I had freedom rings on because, you know, it was 93. The lived queer experience, from the glamorous but unacknowledged 70s to the suppressed and stigmatised 80s, made way for the renaissance of the 90s. And then by the mid-90s, people were beginning to have access to medications that could prolong their lives. So I think that you weren't dancing while Rome was burning anymore. The industry really came together and and really stayed behind raising money and raising awareness for the AIDS pandemic and never gave up. And, And still, you have that sense of community today. The fashion industry typically, when when um, empowered, will rise to the occasion. And fashion, almost by definition, kind of does that. It leads the way, it inspires people, it engages people, it kind of gives them a sense of where we're going. And I think we as a collective, we have been extraordinary. 
The queer community had always loved fashion, created it, promoted it, worn it. But in the 90s, the fashion industry finally began to reciprocate that love, rejecting the fear and suppression that the AIDS pandemic had caused, opened up a whole new world of visibility and representation. Despite the adversity the queer community faced, and still continues to face even today, we can look back on the history of struggle with admiration and inspiration. There was still a long journey ahead, but at least that journey was out and proud, voguing on the runway. In Vogue, the 1990s, is presented by Anna Winter and produced by Jasmine Aguilera, Julia Doyle, Kinsey Clark, Taka Zen and Megan Lubin. Edited by Maura Wolfs. Our executive producer is Alex Kappelman. Mixed by Rainhouse. In Vogue's editorial team is Laird Borelli-Person, Mark Holgate, Nicole Phelps and myself. Special thanks to creative editorial director Mark Riducci, digital director Annalisa Yabsley and vice president of audio Julie Shen. Please do subscribe to the podcast. It helps new listeners find the show. You can find additional information, incredible imagery, and episode references in the show notes or at vogue.com slash podcast. I'm your host, Hamish Bowles. Until next week, in Vogue. Hey, friends. I'm Alameen Abdul-Mahmoud. I'm the host of the new podcast, Commotion. If you don't know about us yet, well, we are your daily deep dive into the biggest stories coming out of the world of pop culture, art, and entertainment. And luckily, I'm not going to be doing it alone, okay? I'll be joined by some brilliant culture writers and thoughtful superfans. We're going to have hilarious hot takes. We're going to have vibrant debates. Consider this your invitation to join the group chat. Get in here and join us. Commotion, available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts.